Section 18, Introduction After the three witnesses had enjoyed the marvelous revelation in which Moroni had shown them the principal pieces of the Nephite treasury, they were anxious to get on with the building up of the church. However, the three witnesses had never had the opportunity of carefully studying the text of the Book of Mormon. Therefore, they were in no position to try to set up the church. The immediate task at hand was to publish the Book of Mormon and begin studying the fullness of the gospel which it contained. It will be nine months before the Lord gives them another revelation. So now we examine the text of section 18. Now behold, because of the thing which you, my servant Oliver Cowdery, have desired to know of me, I give unto you these words. It is obvious that it is Oliver Cowdery who is anxious to know what they should do next. Behold, I have manifested unto you by my Spirit in many instances that the things which you have written are true. Wherefore you know that they are true. And if you know that they are true, behold, I give unto you a commandment, that you rely upon the things which are written. The Lord reminds Oliver that the Spirit has verified repeatedly that the things which have been set forth in the Book of Mormon are true. Therefore, he wants his modern servants to rely upon the contents of the Book of Mormon to guide them from here on. For in them are all things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build up my church upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. This revelation declares that if they will build the church in modern times, the same way it was built up among the Nephites when Christ ministered among them, it will last forever, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Behold, the world is ripening in iniquity, and it must needs be that the children of men are stirred up unto repentance, both the Gentiles and also the house of Israel. The Lord warns that a tidal wave of iniquity is spreading across the earth, and that the whole world must be aroused to resist it, both among the Gentiles and also the children of Israel. Wherefore, as thou hast been baptized by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., according to that which I have commanded him, he hath fulfilled the thing which I commanded him. The Lord wants to verify that when Oliver was baptized by Joseph Smith, it was in accordance with the command which was given to Joseph. In other words, the Lord does not want Oliver to think Joseph is proceeding on his own. And now marvel not that I have called him unto mine own purpose, which purpose is known in me. Wherefore, if he shall be diligent in keeping my commandments, he shall be blessed unto eternal life, and his name is Joseph. In the new structure of the church, Joseph will be called to preside, and the Lord doesn't want Oliver to think that Joseph has appointed himself to this high office. Actually, Joseph, whether he knows it or not, is being set up as the presiding authority over the entire dispensation of God's kingdom. But, of course, his continuance in that office depends upon his willingness to obey God's commandments.
And now, Oliver Cowdery, I speak unto you, and also unto David Whitmer, by the way of commandment. For behold, I command all men everywhere to repent. And I speak unto you, even as unto Paul, mine apostle. For you are called, even with that same calling with which he was called. Now, since Oliver Cowdery is anxious to know what is expected of him, the Lord says that both he and David Whitmer are called to be apostolic missionaries similar to the Apostle Paul. Now notice that the message they are to teach is very basic. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh, Wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. And he hath risen again from the dead, that he might bring all men unto him on conditions of repentance. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth! Wherefore you are called to cry repentance unto this people, With masses of the people turning toward iniquity, the Lord is not expecting mass conversions. He wants to stress that every soul is precious, and conversion in the final analysis is an individual thing. The Lord wants his apostolic missionaries to think of converts in terms of person by person, not in vast masses. Sometimes you can convert by families, but even that is rare. The missionary target is the individual. Here is how the Savior makes his point. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father! And now, if your joy will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, How great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me! Behold, you have my gospel before you, and my rock, and my salvation. This is the challenge to the missionary. He has the whole gospel before him, the doctrine, the history, and the promises of God's covenant. It must be learned line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, until the missionary can proclaim and defend the broad spectrum of the entire gospel. But in this endeavor, the missionary is not alone. He has the enlightening influence of the Holy Ghost to help. Ask the Father in my name, in faith believing that you shall receive, and you shall have the Holy Ghost, which manifesteth all things which are expedient unto the children of men. Now comes one of the most important guidelines a missionary must follow. And if you have not faith, hope, and charity, you can do nothing. Contend against no church, save it be the church of the devil. This means a missionary can speak against evil, but never against the various denominations. All evil is part of the devil's church, but God's prospective converts are in the numerous denominations. Take upon you the name of Christ, and speak the truth in soberness. And as many as repent and are baptized in my name, which is Jesus Christ, and endure to the end, the same shall be saved. 
The important part of this verse is, quote, endure to the end, unquote. The greatest single threat to a convert or member of the church is failure to endure to the end. Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other name given whereby man can be saved. Wherefore all men must take upon them the name which is given of the Father, for in that name shall they be called at the last day. Wherefore, if they know not the name by which they are called, they cannot have place in the kingdom of my Father. The focal point of the entire plan of salvation is the name of Jesus Christ and the magnificent atoning sacrifice which makes the forgiveness of sins and advancement up the ladder of eternal progression possible. And now behold, there are others who are called to declare my gospel, both unto Gentile and unto Jew. This revelation was directed toward Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer, but the Lord wants them to know that they are to be accompanied by others who will receive the same calling. Yea, even twelve, and the twelve shall be my disciples, and they shall take upon them my name. And the twelve are they who shall desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart. The Lord says there will be a quorum of twelve apostolic missionaries. And if they desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart, they are called to go into all the world to preach my gospel unto every creature. Their calling is to take the gospel to all the world, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And they are they who are ordained of me to baptize in my name, according to that which is written, and you have that which is written before you. Wherefore, you must perform it according to the words which are written. Their missionary manual is the Book of Mormon and the other scriptures which describe the fullness of the gospel which is to be preached worldwide. Jesus then addresses the twelve apostles as though they were already before him. And now I speak unto you, the twelve. Behold, my grace is sufficient for you. You must walk uprightly before me, and sin not. And behold, you are they who are ordained of me to ordain priests and teachers, to declare my gospel according to the power of the Holy Ghost which is in you, and according to the callings and gifts of God unto men. Now the Savior wants to emphasize that this revelation is not from Joseph Smith. He is merely recording the exact words which are coming from the Savior himself. And I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it. These words are not of men nor of man, but of me. Wherefore you shall testify they are of me and not of man. For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you, for they are given by my Spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another, and save it were by my power you could not have them. Wherefore you can testify that you have heard my voice, and know my words." At this point, the Lord gives a very heavy assignment to Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. He says, And now, behold, I give unto you Oliver Cowdery and also unto David Whitmer 
that you shall search out the twelve, who shall have the desires of which I have spoken. Neither Oliver Cowdery nor David Whitmer would have realized it, but a lot of development would have to take place in the ranks of the kingdom of God before they would join with Martin Harris and select the first quorum of twelve apostles. It would take place in Kirtland, Ohio, February the 14th, 1835, after a body of the priesthood had just gone through a scathing trial of their faith and from which the selection could be made. Jesus now describes the kind of men they need to find for the Quorum of the Twelve. And by their desires and their works you shall know them. And when you have found them, you shall show these things unto them. Whenever the Quorum of the Twelve convene, they unite in petitioning the Father on behalf of the Quorum. Today the Quorum convenes every Thursday, if at all possible and a most solemn part of the meeting is selecting the topics for which they will unite in prayer. And you shall fall down and worship the Father in my name. And when they go forth to preach, their commission is almost identical with the command which Jesus gave to his apostles in Jerusalem. And you must preach unto the world, saying, You must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for all men must repent and be baptized, and not only men, but women and children who have arrived at the years of accountability. The apostolic missionaries must be an example to all the church, Jesus says. And now, after that you have received this, you must keep my commandments in all things. And by your hands I will work a marvelous work among the children of men, unto the convincing of many of their sins, that they may come unto repentance, and that they may come unto the kingdom of my Father. The reward which the apostles will receive for their monumental services in the kingdom are beyond measure. Wherefore, the blessings which I give unto you are above all things. And after that you have received this, if you keep not my commandments, you cannot be saved in the kingdom of my Father. But of course, if they falter in their callings and fail to keep the commandments, the penalty will be severe. The Lord says, Behold, I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, and your Redeemer, by the power of my Spirit, have spoken it. Amen. Then the Lord gives his benediction on this wonderful revelation. Section 19, Introduction There was a lapse of around nine months between Section 18 and Section 19. Let us go back to where we left off. As soon as the translation of the unsealed portion of the plate was completed, Joseph Smith came to the title page which summarized the purpose of this entire book. Joseph Smith used this for the purpose of obtaining the copyright. Historian Carter E. Grant accurately summarizes the events that followed. He says, As soon as the eight witnesses had written their testimony to combine with the testimony of the three witnesses, Joseph and Hiram, Oliver, Martin, and the Whitmers went to Palmyra and endeavored to make arrangements with Egbert B. Grandin to print the Book of Mormon, but believing it would not pay, he refused. Then the brethren went to Rochester, New York, 
23 miles northwest, but having no better success with the two publishers there, they returned greatly disappointed. Finally, on August the 25th, 1829, Martin succeeded in securing Grandin to publish 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon for $3,000. Grandin consented, however, only after Martin had given the publisher a mortgage on one of the Harris farms. Unquote. This is described by Carter E. Grant in his book, The Kingdom of God Restored, published by Deseret Book in 1955, and it's, this is found on page 91. After Joseph made these arrangements, he realized there was practically no room for him to stay in the crowded family cabin in Palmyra, and so he left Hiram in charge of publishing the Book of Mormon while he returned to Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Emma was still living in their tiny cottage. Prior to his departure, however, he had asked Oliver Cowdery to make two copies of the Book of Mormon manuscript. One copy was hidden securely in the trunk with Lucy Smith's bed resting on top of it. Hiram then kept the other manuscript from which he could deliver to the printer 26 pages at a time for typesetting and printing. Each day, Hiram carefully placed 26 pages of the manuscript under his vest and delivered them to the printer. Then he would bring them back under his vest each night. He was accompanied by a guard, actually one of the Whitmer boys, and another man stood guard at the house all night. These extreme precautions were necessary because of the groups in Palmyra who had taken oaths to prevent the devilish Book of Mormon from being printed. However, the printing came to a stop when the book was nearly finished. It was because the people of Palmyra had a mass meeting and agreed to boycott the book when it was published. This frightened the printer since Martin Harris had only promised to mortgage his farm to pay for the book in case it didn't sell. That wasn't like having cash in the bank to back up the project. Therefore, he stopped printing. In this desperate situation, Hiram pleaded with Joseph to return to Palmyra and ask the Lord what should be done. Joseph arrived in Palmyra in early March and this revelation was the result. However, it was addressed primarily to Martin Harris. Here is the text of section 19. The Lord began this revelation in a most unusual way. I am Alpha and Omega, Christ the Lord. Yea, even I am He, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of the world. I having accomplished and finished the will of him whose I am, even the Father, concerning me, having done this that I might subdue all things unto myself. The Lord was in an impatient mood. He wanted to remind Martin Harris that this was his master speaking. It was not Joseph Smith. Retaining all power, even to the destroying of Satan and his works at the end of the world, and the last great day of judgment, which I shall pass upon the inhabitants thereof, judging every man according to his works and the deeds which he hath done. There is no power in existence greater than the power of the Savior. 
In the end, he will destroy Satan and send him back to outer darkness as a stripped naked intelligence. And all mankind will stand before the Savior to be judged according to their deeds. And surely every man must repent or suffer, for I, God, am endless. Now the Lord decided to not only solve the Book of Mormon problem, but first to illuminate the minds of these future leaders of the church concerning a false doctrine that was being taught by the Protestant churches in all their local revivals. They were preaching about the terrifying prospect of endless torment in hell, where the wicked would burn forever without being consumed. The Lord implied that the torment was not necessarily endless just because he was endless. Wherefore I revoke not the judgments which I shall pass, but woes shall go forth, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, yea, to those who are found on my left hand. However, he wanted to emphasize that punishment for sin was very real and very terrible. Nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written, Endless Torment. Nevertheless, although it is true that there is endless torment, it is not written that there is no end to the torment. Again, it is written eternal damnation. Wherefore, it is more express than other scriptures that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men altogether for my name's glory. In the same sense, it is written eternal damnation but that is to have a psychological effect so that it will work on the hearts of the people. Here again is the implication that the damnation does not go on forever. Nevertheless, in softening the harshness of the term, the Lord does not want to diminish the reality of this punishment or damnation just because it doesn't last forever. Wherefore, I will explain unto you this mystery. For it is meet unto you to know, even as mine apostles. I speak unto you that are chosen in this thing, even as one, that you may enter into my rest. The real mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that through repentance and baptism, we can completely escape the terrible punishment for our sins. That is what the atonement will do for those who believe and come unto Christ. He doesn't expect us to entirely understand how it works, but the main thing is to realize that it does work, even though it remains a mystery to many. Now the Lord will try to explain why God's punishment is endless, even though it does not continue endlessly as far as the individual is concerned. For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great is it! For behold, I am endless, and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment, for endless is my name. Wherefore, eternal punishment is God's punishment. Endless punishment is God's punishment. Wherefore, I command you to repent and keep the commandments which you have received by the hand of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., in my name. And it is by my almighty power that you have received them. So God's commandments, including those received through Joseph Smith, must be obeyed. 
or the sinner will be exposed to God's endless punishment until he has paid the uttermost farthing. Therefore I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not! How exquisite you know not! Yea, how hard to bear you know not! So if mankind does not repent, God's Spirit is withdrawn, and the wicked are exposed to God's eternal punishment until he has paid the uttermost farthing. Ordinarily, our spirits do not feel physical suffering in the second estate, but if the Father withdraws his spirit from us just as he did with Jesus, our spirits agonize in the most terrible torment until the Father's spirit returns. Only through repentance can we escape this torture. Jesus was exposed to the tortures of hell just so he could say he had passed beneath all things and suffered all things even if it was only for a moment. That is why he could describe how terrible it was. And it is horrible, even beyond our wildest imagination. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. The wicked must suffer just as Jesus did, except they must suffer until they have paid the uttermost farthing. With Jesus it was over in a few moments. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink, Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Nevertheless, Jesus fulfilled his mission completely. He not only saved the repentant from their sins, but he saved this whole round of creation. And what about those who do not repent but suffer for their own sins? The answer to that question is in section 76, verses 38 to 39. The Lord says that after they have paid for their sins and suffering, they are described by the Lord as being redeemed. This means that they are no longer under condemnation, and God can then use them in many wonderful ways that serve his righteous purposes. Wherefore I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree you have tasted, at the time I withdrew my spirit. This last phrase is for the benefit of Martin Harris. He will never forget how he felt after he lost the hundred and sixteen fool's cap pages. And I command you that you preach not but repentance, and show not these things unto the world until it is wisdom in me. The Lord knows that Martin Harris is a fragile disciple. If he just teaches repentance, he will be all right. But if he tries to explain the deeper doctrine, such as the eternal nature of God's punishment, 
he may find the people rejecting him because he cannot adequately communicate the more profound gospel themes. For they cannot bear meat now, but milk they must receive. Therefore they must not know these things, lest they perish. The meat of the gospel is explaining why certain profound doctrines exist and how they work. However, Martin will be better off if he stays with the milk of the gospel, which simply tells the saints what to do. And right now, what to do is to repent and obey God's revealed commandments. Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. As we continue with this history, we will find that Martin Harris has a few weaknesses that the Lord is trying to help him overcome. I am Jesus Christ. I came by the will of the Father, and I do his will. This is just to remind them once again who is talking. Now Jesus is ready to shift his discussion away from the doctrinal matters and get right down to the business at hand. He hasn't forgotten the financial problem facing Joseph Smith and the reason he had to be called up from Harmony, Pennsylvania. But the Lord knows Martin Harris has a few private problems that need to be handled. For example, Martin has been separated from his obstreperous wife, Lucy, for over a year. Perhaps he has been observing the attractive wives of some of the other men who made wiser choices than Martin did. Apparently the Lord must have had something like this in mind because he said to Martin, And again I command thee that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor seek thy neighbor's life. And speaking of coveting, the Lord now gets down to the problem of Martin's promise to support the publishing of the Book of Mormon. He says, And again I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon, which contains the truth and the word of God, which is my word to the Gentile, that soon it may go to the Jew, of whom the Lamanites are a remnant, that they may believe the gospel and look not for a Messiah to come who has already come. The Lord is depending on the Book of Mormon to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, the Lamanites, and the Jews. This is the only way he can prepare them for the second coming of Christ. And again, I command thee that thou shalt pray vocally as well as in thy heart, yea, before the world, as well as in secret, in public, as well as in private. Apparently Martin has a problem similar to that of Newell Knight, who doesn't like to pray in public. The Lord wants Martin to proclaim his prayers where people can hear him and rejoice in his mighty petitions to heaven. And thou shalt declare glad tidings, yea, publish it upon the mountains and upon every high place, and among every people that thou shalt be permitted to see. Martin is also a quiet person. The Lord wants him to open his mouth and proclaim the gospel message with joy and enthusiasm. And thou shalt do it with all humility, trusting in me, reviling not against revilers, 
Nevertheless, the Lord does not want him to be boisterous, pompous, or arrogant. And of tenets thou shalt not talk, but thou shalt declare repentance and faith on the Savior, and remission of sins by baptism and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. And he reminds him once more to stay away from the deeper doctrines. To preach repentance is easy, but as Isaiah said, who shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk. That's in Isaiah 28 and 9. Or as Paul says, quote, meat of the gospel belongs to them that are of full age, unquote. That's in Hebrews 5 and 14. The record indicates that Martin Harris never did get quite past the gospel milk, and he never became competent to handle gospel meat. Now the Lord lays down a stern mandate to Martin. He says, Behold, this is a great and the last commandment which I shall give unto you concerning this matter. For this shall suffice for thy daily walk, even unto the end of thy life. And misery thou shalt receive if thou wilt slight these counsels, yea, even the destruction of thyself and property. Impart a portion of thy property, yea, even part of thy lands and all save the support of thy family. Pay the debt thou hast contracted with the printer. Release thyself from bondage. Notice that this is the great and last commandment the Lord intends to give Martin Harris. First, he is to sell that part of his property which is not needed for the support of his family. Then he is to pay off the $3,000 due the printer for the Book of Mormon. In the eyes of the Lord, it was a sacred promise when he assumed that debt. Now the Lord calls Martin Harris on a permanent full-time mission. He says, Leave thy house and home, except when thou shalt desire to see thy family and speak freely to all, yea, preach, exhort, declare the truth, even with a loud voice, with a sound of rejoicing, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord God. Pray always, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you, and great shall be your blessing, yea, even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth, and corruptibleness to the extent thereof. Martin may not have realized it, but he had been called on the same kind of mission as the apostles who worked with Jesus in Jerusalem. Now the Lord asks Martin three stirring questions which should have been a liahona for him the rest of his life. Behold, canst thou read this without rejoicing and lifting up thy heart for gladness? Or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide? Or canst thou be humble and meek, and conduct thyself wisely before me? Yea, come unto me, thy Savior. Amen. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on the Prophet Joseph Smith by W. Cleon Skousen, go to skousenlibrary.com. Look for his book titled Brother Joseph.